Amen. All right, church, let's grab our Bibles. We're in Revelation chapter 21 today. When you find that, let's go ahead and stand up together as we are reminded that God's Word is holy. It is inspired. It is the inerrant, infallible Word of the true and living God. Revelation 21, 1 to 4 is our text. Again, Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Listen now to the Word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Praise be to God. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there are things that words can't describe, and let's talk about that here at the beginning as we move into chapters 21 and 22. There's a reason that human language has a limitation and it is incapable of describing certain things. First of all, because some things are illogical or unreasonable. If I were to try to describe to you what a four-sided triangle looks like, no matter how hard I try, human words and language would not have access to such a description because a four-sided triangle is illogical. If I were to try to describe to you what the smell of the number eight is and whether it's more pleasant than the smell of the number nine, I would, I would do no good trying to describe that because words don't have the capability to describe that which is unreasonable or illogical. And yet it's also true though, isn't it, that there are certain things that words would seem to fail to describe because um, certain beauties and glories are beyond the capacity to, to, do, to do that, to describe it. So if you asked me, for instance, how beautiful is my wife? I could say, well, she's very beautiful. Or I could say, well, she's exceedingly gorgeous. Or I could say she's very, very fair. Right? But even if I was William Shakespeare, uh, there is a certain limitation to my ability to describe certain things. I just can't do that with words. If you were to ask me what I'm going to feel on June 1st of this year, when I walk my daughter down this aisle here at Gospel Fellowship as she's going to be married on that day, if you ask me to describe in words what I'm feeling in that moment, I'm probably not going to be able to do that because there are certain things that words are just incapable of, of doing. There's a limit to that. And especially in the realm of, the, of theology, uh, we run into what is sometimes described as the problem of religious language. It's a, it's a discussion in, in the realm of philosophy. Because how can you describe something like the word glory, for instance? Can you define that? Well, sure, I could probably start with the Greek and the Hebrew root words and things like that. But, but there's, a, there's a limitation to the capacity of even the human mind to understand what that is. If I tried to define the word blessing, as simple as that word is and as often as we use it, I could try my best, I could say blessing is like covenantal favor, and we could start there, but, but even still, there's a, there's a point to which I can't, as a preacher, convey all of the realities that I'm trying to convey with simple words, and so 
So here's the problem. We're now coming into Revelation 21 and 22, in which we are now looking at the glories and the splendor and the majesty of heaven itself. And I'm telling you right now that I'm going to struggle as a preacher to try to convey the weightiness of the beauty of the things that John is here describing. John has an advantage over me because John says here in Revelation 21.1, he says that he saw these things. So John saw what I can only try to describe to you using words. Now, please understand me. The problem in communication here is not going to be that the scriptures are lacking in any particular way because the scriptures are the infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the true and living God. And we who are Christians, we sometimes describe the Bible itself as having the property of perspicuity, which means it is intelligible. Okay, This is not a book of incomprehensible mysteries that God has given to us. There is a real sense in which the Bible is understandable to average, ordinary people like you and I. But that doesn't mean that David and I, as we try to go through Revelation 21 and 22, we aren't going to find ourselves fetching for words and trying to relate to concepts that are beyond our pay grade, as it were. Does that make sense? And so the best that we can do here as preachers is we're going to try to work through the images and the analogies and the Old Testament allusions that John himself gave us as he describes infallibly and inspired by the Holy Spirit as he was these glorious realities that are the heavenly places for which we, by the way, long, I trust. We we long for this. So now um, let's just frame it up here a little bit because we've, we've taken a little side road over the holidays. We've done a little bit in the Gospel of Luke. But now, obviously, this morning, we're back in the book of Revelation, and David and I, our plan is to finish up the book, uh, Lord willing. But we are actually going to slow it down just a little bit for these last two chapters. In fact, I think we have something like 10 sermons to go yet in the book of Revelation. We're in no hurry to work through these things with any sort of given pace. We want to savor and treasure these things because, um, quite honestly, this book has been hard. And the devil has, has been raging throughout the book of Revelation. And we've seen much of the work of, of evil in the demonic realm in this particular book. And we've read much of persecution and the sufferings of the church. And now here, for two whole chapters, 21 and 22, we have the privilege and the joy and the duty to just slow down and as much as words will allow us, We're going to try to drink in, like wringing out a honeycomb, we're going to try to drink in all of the beauties that heaven has for us in its description here in these two chapters. So I can't wait for this, and I hope you can't wait for it either. It's going to be a wonderful 10 more sermons in this book before we finally shut it down and move on to other things. So here's my goal for you this morning. I want to give you five glimpses of glory that John himself gives us in these, these four verses that we have on our, on our table this morning. So if you have your Bible open again, let's make sure that we're looking at this together. We're going to just work through this passage, 21, 1 to 4, and I'm going to give you five glimpses of glory that John himself gives us in his description of what he saw. So let's start in 21, verse 1, where John says, Then I saw, so he saw it, we didn't, we're just listening to his words, inspired as they are. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now what in the world does John mean when he says he saw a new heaven and a new earth? Well, the first thing that we should probably recognize is that in these two chapters, 21 and 22, John is going to continue to give us Old Testament allusions, especially from the book of Isaiah, and especially even all the way back to the book of Genesis in chapters 1, 2, and 3. We're going to see a large bridge between, built between the end of the Bible and the beginning of the Bible. And so when John says that he saw new heavens and a new earth, there's something like a hearkening back to the creation itself. But this is a line that John has drawn from Isaiah, chapter 65 and 66. Isaiah 2 says he saw something like this, or he describes this. Flip back with me, if you will, quickly. We're on a time frame this morning to Isaiah chapter 65. I just want you to see this in the prophetic writings. Isaiah says something like this too. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, Isaiah reports, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. And then he goes on, Isaiah does in that chapter, to describe the rejoicing of God's people, to describe even the rejoicing of God himself. And he says something that's kind of hard to grasp here. In verse 20, he says, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. He's describing here the sort of blessing and harmony of this new created order. And he says down in verse 25, That the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. What in the world is Isaiah seeing here? What is he describing? Well, there's a sense in which, understand, that Isaiah is describing the joy that God's people are going to have when they come back into the land after the exile. Remember, Isaiah prophecies during a time of much suffering. And Isaiah is, uh, he has the, the unenviable task of describing Assyrian aggression in the Babylonian exile. And Isaiah says, no, there, there will be a day when God fulfills his covenantal promises. And so it's kind of like Isaiah begins to lift up his eyes and as he's, he's seen the sufferings of God's people, he's looking forward to a later time when Messiah will come and bring his glorious kingdom in. But then it's almost like Isaiah lifts his eyes up even further, and he's sort of looking out into eternity itself. Now all of that is being captured here, and John is hearkening back to this kind of language here of God creating a new heaven and a new earth. This is the same theme that, by the way, Peter himself picks up. Let's look at another place where this language is used. Flip, flip with me quickly to 2 Peter chapter 3, um, back in your New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter says this, and I'm going to quote here, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for? And hastening the coming of the, the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. And then look at, listen to this, 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter here also uses that Isaianic language of a new heaven and new earth. And Peter's point here is that, Everything is going to be disclosed on the day of judgment, right? 
And there will be a time in which God manifestly dwells amongst his people. And so, so Peter is looking forward to this, this glorious day of the return of the Lord here. And John also was borrowing off of this language. And so in what sense is this a new heaven and new earth? A good question. Well, going back to Revelation 21, one of the things that we might observe just grammatically here is that when John describes this as a new heaven and new earth, he's using the Greek word here, kainos, which means something like renewed or, um, or the, like, like a new quality or new essence. But it's, but it's not the word neos, which would mean fabricated brand new, okay? So I hope that makes sense, but uh, it's, it's, almost to li- it's, it's almost to the extent that God is, is remaking or reordering or even perfecting that which has already been. And thinking back to what Peter said about God melting down the heavens and the earth and making a new one, it's almost like working with gold where you could imagine an object of particular value being melted down and then remade again. It's, it's not like a, a completely new creation ex nihilo out of nothing, but rather that God takes and perfects and giving a new quality, new life to that which has already been. Probably our best analogy here would be the resurrection body itself, in which there's continuity of our person, there's continuity of our being, there's continuity even of our body, and yet in the resurrection body, there will be something like a new quality or freshness to it. And so the, the best analogy that I could possibly give you to try to describe this, and here I'm already stretching for words, is that it's almost like Isaiah, the prophet, he, he takes us to the wardrobe, but John brings us all the way into Narnia, if that makes sense. Uh, Isaiah shows us, and he opens up the door of, of Narnia, the wardrobe to it, and there's the coats and moving through these things. But John has seen something even beyond what Isaiah himself has seen, okay, in the glories of the freshness of this new order. Now, uh, there's probably a line here in verse 1 that may throw you off a little bit. Let's talk about this line here where it says that there will be no more sea in verse 1. You see that? And you may say, well, that's disappointing. I love the sea. The ocean is beautiful. I love the beach. I go on vacation there. I know. I know. But let's just think back to why John would say that this new heaven and this new earth has no more sea. Well, what, what does the sea portend to us in the scriptures? Well, again, going all the way back to the creation in Genesis, the sea is that which divides the land in the second and third creation days. You remember that? And uh, the sea is that which even today divides nation from nation and land from land. And yet in heaven, what does God do? But God is bringing together all of his elect, all of his people from all times and places. God is bringing them together into his own presence. And so there's a sense in which the sea itself, which heretofore had been that which divides people, divides nation from nation. Of course, look at any map and you'll notice that the nations are divided by rivers and lakes and by seas and by oceans. There's a sense in which that which divides will be put away so that God can bring all of his glorious elect together into one place. National boundaries and distinctions will be meaningless here, is sort of the idea. And not only that, but remember, in Jewish 
cosmology, the sea is that place which is, is usually thought of as mysterious. Uh, it's chaotic. And it's the sea in the book of Revelation from which the beast comes out in Revelation chapter 13. You remember that? And so the sea is something like a harbinger of, of chaos or, or sometimes even evil. Remember, in Revelation chapter 18, Babylon, that wicked nation, did her best merchantry on the sea. And so there's a sense here in which God is also putting that away, which is chaotic and confusing and dark and terrifying to the human mind here. Spurgeon also adds this. He thinks of the sea as being an emblem of change. And in the new heavens and the earth, there will be no sense in which change is possible anymore. Let me quote from Spurgeon, then we're going to move on. Spurgeon says, The sea is the emblem of change with its ebbs and flows, its glassy smoothness and its mountainous billows, its gentle murmurs and its tumultuous roarings. It is never long the same. Slave of the fickle winds and the changeful moon, its instability is proverbial. Still quoting, In this mortal state we have too much of this, Earth is constant only in her inconstancy, but in the heavenly state, all mournful change shall be unknown, and with it all fear of storm to wreck our hopes and drown our joys. I love that line. If you like that too, that's from his great devotional, Morning and Evening, December 19th, the devotion for that. So change and chaos and even separation will be put away as the Lord puts away even the sea. Now, I want you to notice verse 2 here, and this will be our second glimpse of glory if you're taking notes, that what we see here is the coming down of the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Look at verse 2. John says, and he saw this. We're just trying to describe it, but he saw it. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Pause there. Does that... (laughs) Is that not beyond your mind's capability to picture? What does it mean? The holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down. Why is it coming down? Why is it coming downward? Well, I think there's actually something really important here. Please don't miss this. So uh, topographically, in the Bible, you go up to Jerusalem, right? Right? I mean, look at the Psalms of Ascent, for instance, or look at all the places in the Gospels where it describes Jesus as going up to Jerusalem. Why is that? Because Jerusalem is the high ground. Uh, He goes down to Galilee or down to Egypt, but you go up to Jerusalem. Now, we see something very different here. Jerusalem is coming downward. Question, why is that so? Here's my answer. Because grace always is condescending in nature. Grace is God's glorious mercies coming downward to the people of God, right? And so it's most fitting here to describe heaven not as though you must trek upwardly to it by way of your best works and human efforts, by way of all of your religiosity and all of your strained piety, as though somehow you had to earn your way up to this holy city. But no, it's completely the opposite of that. Instead, what we see here in this beautiful depiction is that God's new city, the new Jerusalem, comes down to you. You can't go up to it. It must come down to you. 
Now, um, another scholar, this is not my original idea, a scholar wiser than myself said, and I've mentioned this before, but I'll bear it repeating it, Christianity is different from every other religion in this. In every other religion, there is an A-shaped reality. You remember me saying this before? In every other religion, you have to strive upwardly by religious works and efforts and pilgrimages and sacrifices, bloodletting, whatever else. You have to work your way up in order to bring the blessings of God down. That's every other system of religion on the face of the earth. Christianity is different. Christianity takes that A-frame and flips it upside down to a V-shaped reality in which God brings his blessings down to you. Why is that? Because you couldn't possibly go get it. You could not possibly raise yourself up by your works and religious actions, no matter how hard you try, so as to bring the blessing of God down. Rather, Christianity is a grace descending faith in which God gives you the mercies of his son Jesus Christ by grace through faith in him alone okay so it's not surprising at all to us that when John sees this depiction of heaven it's not as though we're straining upwardly climbing up the ladder of works to go get it but rather that God brings it down to you you see really important picture there Okay, so that's your, that's your second glimpse of glory. Now let's go to the third one here, which is a, uh, a shift in metaphor very abruptly here in verse, uh, well, the second part of verse 2, where it says, as a bride adorned for her husband. Now I was taught when I was learning how to write that you do not use a mixed metaphor. A mixed metaphor is when you start off with one analogy or figure of speech and then you abruptly shift to another one. Okay, my high school teacher told me that's bad. But the Bible doesn't need to conform to my high school teacher's expectations of good writing because the Bible does use a mixed metaphor here. We start off talking about a city coming down, and now all of a sudden, John, in his uh, describing the indescribable, he shifts rather abruptly to another metaphor. What does he shift to here in the second part of verse 2? Now we've got bridal imagery happening here. Why is that? Why does he shift to a wedding analogy? Well, it shouldn't surprise us too much. He's already used the wedding imagery earlier in chapter 19. Remember that he said in chapter 19, verse 7, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So John is now hearkening back to that matrimonial language that he, he, already, he already brought to us in, in chapter 19. Why does he do that? Well, well, simply this. Because it's hard to find in all of human experience a conception of joy that matches what we have when we go to or attend or participate in a wedding. And that is ubiquitous across human culture, right? In, in human culture, it doesn't matter where you grew up or what nation or what culture, what society, everybody knows that a wedding is one of the most joyful days of your whole life. I'm not saying there are other good days, right? When you have a baby, that's, 
that's indescribably beautiful. When, when you have a baptism, that's wonderful. When you have a, a graduation or an anniversary, all of those things are great. But we all know, don't we, that there's something beautiful about a wedding. And so John here, describing the indescribable, he, he, he introduces to us, again, this idea of a wedding feast here. And so what is it about weddings that help us to understand what heaven is? Well, probably these three things. First, the joy, okay? Because there's no joy like a wedding day. Secondly, because of it, it's anticipatory. Um, it's anticipatory ethos that it has to it. We, we anticipate weddings. We long for them. It's something you have to prepare for diligently. By the way, we're preparing for June 1st. It's a big day for the Everhards. Um, there's lists and there's registrations and there's plans and there's food and, and there's invitations and there's garments that need to be ordered and sized and fit. There's, an, there's a massive amount of preparation here. And, and the same thing is true. Here, we are longing for this, what John is describing. But it goes beyond that too, because not only is there rejoicing and anticipation, but in a wedding you have what I'm going to call covenantal culmination or covenantal consummation even right because at a wedding you have all of the promises that have been hoped for and waited for they begin to be fulfilled then right all of the things that you swore you would do all of the things that you promised you would feel those are beginning to be culminated and even consummated from the moment of the wedding on and so, um, if, you, if you ask me <laughs> what I feel on June 1st when I walk down this aisle with Soraya and then turn around, as only a few people ever get to do, walk their daughter down the aisle and then also perform the matrimonial ceremony, I can't tell you. I have no idea. All I can tell you is that I'm going to be overwhelmed with joy on that occasion. And John wants you to understand that. Please make sure that you see yourself participating in this matrimonial feast here. Will you be there? I hope you can say yes to that. Fourth glimpse of glory. Go on to verse 3. There is, of course, the promise of his presence. Now let's look at this verse, and I'm going to do my best here. You're, you're noticing I'm straining already. But in verse 3, he begins to describe something that is beyond the capacity of words. Look, look at this. John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, if everything else is like the light and the heat of heaven, this is the sun right here. Because all of the benefits and all of the beauties and all of the joys are flowing out of verse 3. Verse 3 is the sun and everything else is the heat and the light. Why is that? Because in heaven, God himself will be manifestly present. What does it mean that God is present with his people? Well, let's just pause and, and slow down on this for a minute. What does it mean that he will dwell with his people. Well, all right. So um, we have the word omnipresence. That's a theological word that we use. It's not in the Bible, but it's a theological category. 
that we describe in Reformed theology to indicate the fact that God is everywhere. He's already present in that sense, yes? In fact, he's everywhere present. That's the definition of the word omnipresent. He's present everywhere. So, Pittsburgh, is it true that God is present here? Yes or no? Is it also true, though, trick question, that he's in Cleveland? I mean, think here. Yes. And in the same way. Uh, even an Ohioan would say that God is present in Michigan, as much as that pains me to admit. So the, the doctrine of God's omnipresence is that he's everywhere. He's on Mars as far as that goes. His presence cannot be avoided. That's the point of Psalm 139 when the psalm writer is saying, there's nowhere I can go to flee from his presence. Where am I going to go? Sheol? He's there. Okay, so we start with the fact that God is omnipresent. But so let's go beyond that. Okay? Because in the scriptures, there are times and places, rare though they may be, where God actually shows up in what we might call his manifest presence. Can you think of an example in which God shows up in his manifest presence? Can you think of one? I'll give you a couple. You think of one. How about the burning bush, right, where the Lord speaks out of this bush that cannot be consumed? How about Exodus 19, when God shows up manifestly on Sinai and he shakes the whole mountain because he appears essentially in the thunder and the lightning and the the very terror of the quaking of the mountain itself? Yes? How about the Shekinah glory in 1 Kings chapter 8 when Solomon dedicates the temple and the glory cloud fills the whole place such that the priests can't even do their ministration. And so sometimes God shows up manifestly, though he is already omnipresent, he shows up manifestly, visually, and as it were, tangibly to some extent. Can we go further than that? Yes, we can. Because when we describe the work of the Holy Spirit, the Bible also tells us that God dwells with and in believers, John 14. Is it true that he is in you, in a way that he is not in an unbeliever. Yes, it is. I hope you believe that. Okay? His indwelling presence takes up residence in the lives and in the hearts of his people. So what does it mean then that God will dwell with his people in Revelation 21.3? Best I can do for you is that it's all three of those categories together and at the same time. His indwelling presence, his manifest presence, and his omnipresence all together in the glories of heaven. Jonathan Edwards, by the way, says that there may even be ways in which God is present then that we can't even understand now. Edwards says we may see colors then that we don't even have on our color spectrum now. Edwards says we may hear songs and tunes and sounds that the human ear right now is not calibrated to even be able to receive. Edwards says there may be feelings and affections in the heart that right now you don't even have capacity for. So all of these ways in which God is present and possibly more, likely more, certainly more, than we can even understand. Let's go on to the last glimpse of glory here in verse 4. This is our fifth one. That death itself is going to die out. Look at verse 5. The death of death. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
Now, it's a good thing we've got nine more sermons on heaven because I want to introduce right now a concept that we're going to work through later on as we work through chapter 21 and 22. The concept here is discontinuity in continuity. Okay? It has to do with that kainos versus neos concept of renewed instead of completely, refab- completely fabricated out of, out of nothingness. Um, there is a sense in which the new heavens and the earth carry over continuity from the previous world, and there's a sense in which there is complete discontinuity in which certain things that ex- existed once are no more. Does that make sense? Continuity and discontinuity. And we're probably going to talk about that multiple times as we go through Revelation 21 and 22. Here is an instance of discontinuity. There is something in the old world. There was something in the, the old life, uh, the old heavens and earth, on the other side of the Narnian wardrobe, right? That is not going to make it through into Narnia. What is it? Well, just look at verse 4. He is going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. Okay, so no more tears. Death itself shall be no more. As John Owen famously said, the death of death in the death of Christ, right? Christ kills death by his own death and resurrection. So death will be no more. Neither shall be uh, any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Discontinuity cannot enter into the new world. It's beautiful, right? Now, there will be other things that are, are, are renewed, and there will be another sense in which there's continuity. Even continuity between the, the end of Revelation and the beginning of Genesis. We're going to see that in a number of ways that John hearkens back to Genesis 1 and 2 here. But at least we can rejoice in this, that no matter what we are suffering, no matter what we have been through even now, death and mourning and crying and pain will have no future existence for us. Praise be to God. This single verse, verse 4, has probably brought more comfort to grieving widows and widowers than any other verse in the Bible. This single verse, verse 4, in chapter 21 of Revelation, has probably brought more comfort and relief of suffering to the hearts of parents who've lost their children or children who've lost their parents or loved ones who've lost their lovers this is a verse that has brought great, uh, brought great comfort to the hearts of those who love Christ and long for the things to come. Before we go to the Lord's Supper, let's do that quickly. Let me ask you a question. Are you still trying to work your way up to heaven? I hope, I hope that you can say no to that. All of this is a gift that comes down to you by the gracious operations of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is yours by grace through faith in his name. With that,